0: Listener support at St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane, and uh, we're continuing our program Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel um, according to, to Matthew. Chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. This is a gospel that's used liturgically um, for the solemn blessing of the palms on Palm Sunday. And it leads us from this introductory gospel into the story of the Passion. It leads us there in all of the gospels. There is this preparatory um, incident of Jesus entering Jerusalem. And so that's where we began then. When they were near Jerusalem and had come in sight of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village facing you, and you will immediately find a tethered donkey and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you are to say the Master needs them and will send them back directly. This took place to fulfill the prophecy See, say to the daughter of Zion, Look, your king comes to you. He is humble, he rides on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." This quote from the Old Testament that Matthew uses here is a quote from Zechariah 9, nine, and it is part of the messianic text from Zechariah's from prophecy. And so what happens now is that in Matthew's Gospel, for probably the first time in the Synoptic Gospels, Jesus very definitively begins to accept the title of Messiah. And, um, and so it is then a dramatic turning point, an event in his public life. He comes from Bethany to Bethphage. And uh, Bethphage is uh, on the other side of the Mount of Olives from Bethany. It's on the Jerusalem side. And it is a small town, and certainly Jesus is familiar with this area. His friendship with Mary, Martha, and with Lazarus is something that the local people probably know. They they also um, presume to know in this, although Matthew doesn't mention it, the uh the fact that as Jesus goes here and is ready to go into Jerusalem, he has just raised Lazarus from the dead. And many people from the local community, including the community of Bethphage, where he finds the, the colt or the donkey. And uh were probably also friends of Martha and Mary and probably some of the Jews who came to weep at the tomb of Lazarus. So what happens now is Jesus comes directly from the raising of Lazarus from the dead before a significant crowd of people, the friends of Martha and Mary. And uh, and so the news is everywhere that he has raised Lazarus from the dead. He has raised someone from the dead. So that when his disciples come into the village and they say the Lord has need of a donkey and that he'll bring it back, he'll give it back soon, Um, There is no hesitation whatsoever, for they have just been struck by the fact that there has been in their midst a prophet, and that the prophet has made a manifestation of himself as the Messiah. And it's for this reason that they quote the prophecies of of Zechariah, very, very directly saying, all right, now, this is a messianic event. This is when Jesus has come kind of out from undercover, and now is to begin to manifest what it means to be a messiah. He's going to undertake the very activity that Peter told him he couldn't take when Peter acknowledged him as the messiah in Matthew 16, 18. He is going to now prepare for his uh, final triumphant entrance into Jerusalem. Remember also in the gospel of the raising of Lazarus, when Jesus said, come, let us go back to Judea. And the disciples argue with him, you know, they just tried to stone you to death there. You're going to go back? And, uh, and he says, you know, we're going back in the daylight. In other words, we're going back in the light of a revelation of the wonder of God. And so what happens, of course, is he goes back, and they do kill him. And so he now, though, however, enters into the final phase, into the Passion and Death and the Resurrection. And he does so in triumph it says so the disciples went out and did as jesus had told them and they brought the donkey and the colt and then they laid their cloaks on their backs and jesus sat on them and great crowds of people spread their cloaks on the road while others were cutting um branches from the trees and spreading them in his path and the crowd who were um who went in front of him And those who followed were all shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessings on him who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heavens." So first of all now, they give the royal welcome. The cloaks are laid down before him. They are cutting branches from the trees, probably olive branches, although they could have been bringing in reeds. Um, you know, from the countryside, kind of creating a mat for the donkey to walk on. Uh, I suppose, you know, like rolling out a carpet for some kind of royal event or some kind of celebrity event, that this is their version of rolling out the red carpet as Jesus then enters Jerusalem, knowing full well what the apostles have already worried about and warned him about. They're going to kill you. Um, And yet he does so with great crowds of people um, hailing him and shouting Hosanna to the Son of David, the very fact that he's called—they call him the Son of David—is a threat to Jerusalem, because that's who they expected the Messiah to be. They expected him to be a descendant of David, and to assume the throne of David, his father. In a way, now they have been able—they have been able to uh, to overcome their their prejudices toward who the Messiah would be. And part of that are the great signs, the healing of the man born blind, the raising of Lazarus. But all of this is a local phenomenon. All of this is something that has transpired and in kind of a small way. Many people are involved. Certainly there's a crowd when Lazarus comes out of the tomb and certainly many people were knowledgeable about the uh, the healing of the blind man. But to say that this was a national event or something would be too, too, in the extreme. So this proclamation of Jesus as the son of David is a local proclamation and, and, and a proclamation that, that is restrained and restricted to the local area of Bethany and Bethphage and probably the fringes within Jerusalem. And so when Jesus then enters in, in fulfillment of the prophecies of Zechariah, the people acknowledge that this is the fulfillment of a messianic prophecy when they call him Hosanna to the son of David. And, uh, and though, so when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was up in turmoil. So all of a sudden, here comes someone into Jerusalem riding on a donkey with a crowd throwing down um, palms, or not palms, but olive branches or rushes or whatever it is before him in their cloaks, and uh, and proclaiming him to be the son of David. So it is kind of a royal reception of sorts, and uh, and so the people were in turmoil. The whole city was, what is this? What is going on? And you can only imagine the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees. So who is this, people asked. And the crowds answered, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So it begins and so now what we find is the truth starts to come out, but the truth is as always a tremendously disturbing and a tremendously upsetting phenomenon. So what then do we see as we move from this in, into, into the story of the, uh, of the passion of the Lord? Well we know what happens next is that uh, Judas slips away. Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives to pray. Judas slips away and for 30 pieces of silver he tells the palace guard where Jesus is so that they can go and arrest him. This, con- this now a popular uprising of sorts is what the Pharisees could see this in the chief priests. There's a crowd and they're shouting and um, and, they're wa- and they're waving branches and welcoming this, this man from Galilee as the Messiah, as the son of David. This is obviously some kind of insurrection. And if we remember in the story of the Passion, that's what Jesus is accused of, accused of causing an insurrection. Um, this, that we read about today in Matthew's Gospel, is the insurrection that he caused. It is a group of people proclaiming him Messiah and honoring him as the son of David and therefore as a royal figure. That, if that's an insurrection, then then certainly the chief priests um, are are correct and how how they denounce him before Pilate. But it is hardly an insurrection, and the real insurrectionist, who we know to be Barabbas, the. Uh, The uh, false leader, the false leader of of the people of Israel, the false liberator, certainly has been an insurrectionist. But it isn't insurrection they're concerned about. That's the story of Barabbas. That's quite clear. They're not concerned about insurrection, really. They're concerned about a challenge to authority. And the challenge to authority that they fear most is that which fulfills the prophecies. Because it might well mean that the Messiah is among us. And if the Messiah is among us, then all of the structures of of power within Jerusalem would be overturned. That no longer would the Pharisees, no longer would the rabbinic law hold, no longer would the high priests be, in fact, the, the uh the most powerful people or the honored people within within the society. No longer would that happen, because now the very object of their expectation, the very person that they had prepared for, was coming among them, and therefore they themselves would be deposed. So it is in the deposing of the power structure that the accusation of insurrection becomes a lethal weapon which they use against Jesus because there is with him a crowd acclaiming him the Messiah. Now we look at all this, we know where this leads and we know we're very familiar with the story of the Passion and certainly on Palm Sunday we'll read that whole story and uh, we'll be able to see it all the way from the beginning to the burial and uh, from this entrance into Jerusalem Um, and uh, to the burial of the Lord after the crucifixion. So that's where we begin to enter then, liturgically, beginning on the day on Palm Sunday and moving throughout the week, basically to the culmination of the crucifixion, of the Last Supper on Thursday, the crucifixion on Friday, and the resurrection on Saturday night. So here here then... What is, what is it that we, ourselves, kind of deal with in relationship? As we've said so many times, you know, these are not just stories apropos of the first century. These are the stories of every time and every place. These are the stories of Jesus' reception in the world um, from the very beginning until the second coming in our own day and age, we find this. We find this as being something that is um, overwhelming for us. Jesus becomes convenient for us, and Jesus and our faith becomes kind of for many. You know, how many times have you heard people say, gee, if I didn't believe, how would I ever get through this? Um, We realize and we know it's important for ourselves. And yet at the same time, we can see even within the church that it is accepted that faith is accepted sometimes only on our own terms and not on Jesus's terms. Only on our own terms and not on the terms established by the Messiah, established by the living God. And so when, when we find that the teachings of Jesus tend to interfere with political or social movements of the present age, and this is true all through history, then there becomes a hostile crowd. A crowd who is saying somehow or other that what he is doing is destructive to society, we find the very progressive movements within uh, within our own country, the whole um, LGBTQT movement. Um, we we find you know the the whole issue with the trans questions and so forth. And when Christianity, in some ways, shapes or forms, seems like an obstacle to the unlimited progress. Of, of these particular movements, then all of a sudden then Christianity becomes dangerous to society. It's identified then as well it's a hate movement. And I think that we find the same thing not only just on the progressive movements, but sometimes too on, on the very on the very traditional movements when we find for instance the whole idea of uh, of somehow the legitimacy of, uh, of imperialistic wars as being in the national interest and so forth. Christianity does not see war as a means of imperial expansion as something that is really acceptable or something that really that really can be authentic within the Christian society, and yet, if the Christians, res- if the Christians resist that kind of endeavor on the part of a national society, be it ourselves or others, um, then Christianity again is seen as a problem, and is seen as a causing of social unrest, and seen as a cause of, uh, of uh, in some way, shape, or form. Um, a disruption and an and an, a, an act of, of hostility toward the hosting society of the faith. I think that we don't have to travel too far to see that in our daily lives, even today, to see that today, as a part of the, uh, as as a part of the whole story of Christianity's struggle in the world to be faithful to the messianic message and the messianic truth. For Jesus, who tells us, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, can we therefore say that in loving our neighbors as ourselves, that this is simply affirmation even of unacceptable behavior? No, Jesus never did that. He was critical of unacceptable behavior and he called people back to a fidelity not to a rigid moral standard of some sort but to some kind of fidelity to the creator god some kind of harmony in their lives with the world that the lord has created and some kind of sense of peacefulness among human beings that he was not, this did not make him indifference to sin, and it did not make him indifference to rebellion against the creator God. It did not make him therefore to say, oh well, um, after all, the individual, my individual right takes precedent over your individual right, and that's okay. Um, It never says that. Each person From the moment of their conception, and we see this in the Feast of the Annunciation of the Lord, that was until the third century the Feast of the Incarnation of Jesus Christ. It was before the 25th of December became Christmas for us, before it was the Feast of the Manifestation of the Child, that it was, in fact, the Feast of the Incarnation. And it wasn't um, until a, a Western abbess traveled into the East and brought with her the western notion of the 25th of december that the east began in any way to even celebrate that at all instead of the 25th of march and so we 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 find then that this the whole the whole question of, uh, for instance, of abortion, is recast in the light of the Feast of the Annunciation. We find that, for instance, the whole idea that we are self-creating and God is not the creator is not something that we find authenticated or justified in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And despite the theologians of um, Moran and Grooms and uh, Boeve and and even the the, the second-rate uh, theologians like perhaps Fajoli and some of the others, um, none of them actually, um, no matter what they say or do, they cannot change the fact that God reveals himself in Jesus Christ and it is only in the person of Jesus Christ that we know God, that we know truth, that we know ourselves. So Saint Bernard reminds us that we do not know who we are until we know our origin and our destiny. John tells us that the Word was with God, the Word was God, and through him all things are, and without him nothing came to be, and that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know ourselves because Jesus is our source. Jesus is the source of our being. He is the Word through whom we have come into being, and our conformity with the Word is the fullness and the sanity and the wholeness of our human nature. And that without that, we are adrift. We are a people with no identity, with no direction. Um, I think that we, we we find all sorts of bizarre things and, and the, we know what humanity is capable of. We've seen it throughout the ages. and um, But, But it isn't, I I think that this is something we really have to grapple with. We have a freedom, but we've seen from the story of Adam and Eve that the freedom can be used for good or for evil. The Lord does not say, unless you only do good, I will take away your freedom. The Lord says you have your freedom and you choose your destiny. And that that freedom, for then, if you choose the Lord, if you choose the living God, then you have fulfilled the purpose of your creation, and you have fulfilled my purpose in creating you, which is for companionship, for relationship, and for love. And that those who accept this from the Lord and those who move more closely into the mystery of his presence among us and who listen attentively to his word, they do not come up with some kind of a rigid, rationalistic form of human behavior. They don't come up with anything like that. They come up with an open human heart, open to Jesus Christ and to each other. And being open to Jesus Christ means being open to his truth, the truth as he proclaims it, the truth as he speaks it, the truth as he sees it and knows it, the truth which is because it is him and because it is created in our lives through him. This idea then that for Jesus to be, in, to be an interruption, into the power structures or the social structures or the social constructs of our society. We see in the Gospel that we're looking at today in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, he is being hailed as the son of David, therefore he is an insurrectionist. Why is he being hailed as the son of David? Because he has raised Lazarus from the dead. Why is he rejected somehow or other for that? Because it takes glory away it takes glory away from the chief priests, from the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a situation very similar to 17th century France, when in the beginning, um, the King Louis XIV's hatred of, of the sisters of Port Royal, of the early Jansen, not the, not the final, but the early Jansenist movement, was because it deflected glory from the king and returned that glory to the Lord um and that it was a miraculous healing through a relic of the crown of thorns that threw the king into a rage because it seemed to authenticate somehow that god was to receive the glory and not himself that's exactly what happened here in jerusalem jesus then and so so louis takes on louis the 14 takes on the characteristics of the chief priests and the scribes and the pharisees and in our society today we are surrounded by the scribes and the Pharisees who resist and who resent the coming of Jesus Christ and the proclamation of his word because it dethrones them from their power, from their positions of absolute power over the lives of others. When it dethrones them from their illusion of power through being the, the manipulators and, and the, uh, the masters of, of social constructs and political realities, it refuses to submit and to to surrender to the word of the living God. In our own personal lives, while we see this within the order of society, we see it also within our own lives. We see, for instance, our own kind of resistance to the teachings of Jesus Christ. Have you ever heard it said, you know, well, the church says this, but I think, um, that somehow placing ourselves on the level with the revealed magisterium of the church, with that which has come into the world from being itself through the Logos, through Jesus Christ, which is, in the therefore, revelation being the person of Jesus and not a body of propositions. And that, therefore, interaction with the person of Jesus is interacting with the truth. And interacting with the truth that oftentimes contradicts our convenience, our desire, our wish. And when it does, we have the choice. We may either surrender to the Lord, or we may say, he is an insurrectionist, And he is no longer someone that we have any interest in following because he doesn't see things my way. He doesn't recognize and honor my position of power and authority and autonomy. He doesn't in any way, shape or form affirm my beliefs in the midst of the world. And so he is a disruptor of society. He is the creator, as they say nowadays, of hate speech. He is an object, a symbol of hatred for humanity because it is the Lord Jesus in his person who somehow or other calls us to wholeness and fullness, reality and the truth of who we are. And when that truth of who we are is displeasing to us, then we have a chance to stand back with the scribes, the Pharisees, the chief priests, and say out loud in the midst of the world, he is an insurrectionist, he is the bearer of hatred, And instead of hatred being the destructive of the destiny of a human person, it is reinterpreted falsely exactly as the word insurrectionist was interpreted falsely by the Pharisees and the scribes and the chief priests and the Sadducees. That Jesus is not an insurrectionist and he is not a symbol of hate. He is a symbol of wholeness and integrity and human patience and human tolerance and human love. And he is not an advocate of deviant social or political positions within the world. When we therefore ourselves approach the living God, let us do so with humility. Let us do so with a desire for truth. Let us do so with a desire for us to reflect as best we can the source from which we have come in order that we might be conformed ultimately to the destiny for which we were created. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com.